I thought there was going to be another thing where, like, this dude descended from the heavens saying, I am the true heart. I am the true mediator. But no, this dude was just like, I want to bone you, so I'm the mediator now. <laughs> Let's get it on. I mean, that's basically what it was. Is yeah. It not? I mean, <laughs> no, yeah, I saw it like that. He's like, yeah, I mean, this is my route to eventually. Uh... What I don't get from this, as the token dude, who wants to fucking bone maria as like the preaching virgin mary like no you don't want to bone the preaching virgin mary maria there was one tweet where somebody said when the night shift came in they were just ready to pounce find a good enough solution that everything that's ever happened between our classes will be fine and that's unrealistic. It's obvious that people laugh because they just said something really dark and disturbing and they're trying to get past it. They're trying to get to the end of the horror. Welcome to The Pointless Century, where we discuss films, literature, and culture in an attempt to understand what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. So the first section is going to be talking about the events of, what is it now, the 6th. We're recording this on the 10th. Fair listeners, keep in mind that we have a long backlog for our episodes between when they're recorded versus when they're released. Tonight you're going to be hearing the episode dealing with Lon Chaney's Phantom of the Opera, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, and Paul Lenny's The Man Who Laughs. I'm Assistant Professor Frank Fuccioe, he, him. And I'm here, joined by... Rachel Homily, pronouns she, her. And also... Anna Wendorf, goon, she, her. As well as our <laughs> patient and hardworking editor. Madeline McKay, pronouns she, her. What's coup in my state? I don't know, what kind of reactions do we have to what happened on Wednesday the first thought is I'm not surprised at all that this is happening. Who could because... have possibly predicted this? <laughs> no one. No one at all could have predicted this. I keep thinking about, oh, who tweeted it? Was it Tommy Lawrence saying that if Trump oh, lost yeah. the- Yes, in March, she tweeted that if Trump lost the election, that they weren't going to be like out in the I streets protesting see. or anything like Biden supporters were. And here we are now. It adds up. I pulled up the tweet and then somebody had a really snarky response that I really liked. It was just, hey, Tommy, how's it looking now? It's crazy how people, I've just seen so many things where people shift, like if they're white, they're right and they can't do anything wrong. And it's just crazy. Police officers were taking selfies with people and there was one tweet where somebody said when the night shift came in, they were just ready to pounce or something like that and just the hypocrisy among news sources and well specific news reporters and such and it's crazy because it's the capitol building and, and they were fighting against a democracy and an election they're like we're all about law and order and then there was somebody beating up a police officer with a blue lives matter flag i think that cop bit it actually i think that if i'm understanding 
the news that I've gotten correctly, which we're recording this on Sunday, and I'm not the most plugged in in the world, but my understanding is that there were five fatalities. One was a Capitol Police officer who, if I understand correctly, you see in that video, he's being beaten with a number of things. I heard a fire extinguisher. I also saw a number of flags, but you know, I could be wrong on that one. There's always a lot of confusion about these things. There was the woman who was shot in the neck by Secret Service because as much as the Capitol Police are, were willing to be like, these people don't look like criminals, uh, Secret Service don't fuck around. And if you do get too close, they will shoot you in the fucking neck. And then there was a guy who tased himself to death by the balls while attempting to steal a painting. What? What the hell? Again, I I may be wrong about some of this stuff because I get my news from Twitter, but I do get my news from Twitter (laughs) through people who are like not idiots and who generally tend to be in like, you know, networks with people who infiltrate these types of things. What a way to go. Yeah, I think that, what am I at now? Is that four? I think that the fifth one was a straight up heart attack. I mean, the guy who tased himself to death died from a heart attack too. That's the way that it would happen. Amidst all this hand wringing, I mean, first off, obviously this could have been prevented, but like that same day, I think that we had 4,000 COVID deaths. So honestly, that's a lot more important. But I suppose symbolically speaking, this one is a pretty big deal, especially if we think about what's going to happen next. I mean, kind of the same thing that has already been said. I was unfortunately at work, you know, when it was all going down. And, you know, my first thought was, oh, shit. (laughs) And then my second thought was, oh, typical. That's about it. So the reactions to this range from, uh, I don't know, the absolutely idiotic, the false equivalence stuff is just like, I don't know how you can be so stupid. I think that that just comes out of reporters getting so used to the both sides framing that they forget that they are supposed to think about things. They're like, if you thought the Black Lives Matter riots were understandable and then you're against this, then like, well, okay, the reason why you're doing something matters and your target matters too. But a lot of that stuff I think is just like right-wingers trying to trick the press by, you know, like working the refs and manipulating those kinds of both sides-isms. It's obvious that at best the Capitol Police chose to be unprepared, and at worst it looks like at least some of them were colluders, which doesn't even necessarily require any level of conspiracy or organization. We know that, you know, cops tend to be right-wingers, So it makes sense. Even if you're going to give them the benefit of the doubt and claim that it wasn't even a conscious decision to be just like, oh, I guess we'll let these people in. Subconscious racism would easily be the thing that would let them get close enough to the point that, you know, then you can't do anything at all. But I think that there's something more nefarious in play that doesn't really need much explanation. You know, there was this meme circulating where Peter Griffin is in the car. (laughs) They hold up the color card and the different colors of skin. And then on the top, you know, the white colors are protesting. And I thought that was the perfect meme, actually. The meme that I've seen going around that I guess hits me is from, I don't know if this is too obscure. Uh, I was under the impression that very few people had seen it, but I think that at least on Twitter weirdos, it is a thing. As a meme from sketch show called, I think you should leave, where a guy is in a hot dog suit saying, we're all trying to find who did this. But the point is that, you know, you had members on the floor of Congress who are claiming that we didn't expect this to happen at all. Why would this possibly be happening? And they're the same members who are, you know, specifically on that day planning to object for no reason whatsoever to the slates of electors. Just to add on to that, I've been seeing a lot of jokes going around saying that they were surprised that a lot of the Republican Congress people weren't going outside to meet their fans. That's a good one. 
Well, the thing is that, you know, Trump did do exactly that. We have him, you know, literally speaking to the crowd and egging them on before they, you know, went and did it. But, you know, obviously he's figured out that he can get away with whatever. There are a couple of things that I thought were interesting in terms of misunderstanding of what politics is, at least in terms of what radical politics is. Our country is so like limited in our analysis of political orientation. You know, basically mainstream politics is just limited to conservative and liberal. And because of that, there's almost no vocabulary whatsoever to talk about something like this, or even to talk about something like Black Lives Matter, for instance, which is, you know, at its heart, especially over the summer, was an abolitionist movement. So you had CNN saying stupid things like, well, these people are anarchists. No, they're not. They're very obviously not anarchists. They're literal fascists, right? And I do think that the coup terminology works, but they were attempting to support the coup. The actual cooing would have happened by their elected representatives refusing to certify the election and I, you know, doing whatever kinds of weird manipulations. Basically, it would mean throwing the rule book out and going fully extra constitutional on the floor of the Senate there and basically saying that, like, well, we don't have to follow the rules anymore. This is a Republican dictatorship. That's what they wanted, basically. Let's not forget that a lot of this, maybe not every single person there is a QAnon supporter, but a large portion of this is fueled by that QAnon stuff, which had people literally saying that, oh, this is the day of the storm. And the day of the storm in Q mythology is like a literal genocide fantasy where they are claiming that large numbers of people, politicians, imaginary pedophile rings, all kinds of descriptions of people who definitely aren't, you know, Jews, right? Uh, All their imagined enemies are going to be either executed or sent to Guantanamo on this day. That's their fantasy. And so you have like a mob of people who are claiming that they're going to take the government back or take the government over and literally fantasizing about killing large numbers of people. I mean, like that is fascism. And that's not to say that everybody believed in that, but that was one of the anchoring ideologies here. You know, you have them on tape saying things like, they're shooting at us. Why are they shooting at us? They're supposed to be shooting at Black Lives Matter. And this is like, you know, after they've already pushed it to the point where they had to break out the pepper balls, they let it get a long way before that. And of course, the the abolitionist response to a lot of this stuff is not like, you know, when we get angry at this, we're not saying that you should be shooting them dead in the street when they come anywhere near the Capitol. We're saying that if you're going to demonstrate that you have discretion here, you can show that you have discretion in other situations. But if we're going to have a government, we're going to claim that its business doesn't need to be interrupted by an unruly mob, then like, yeah, you kind of have to keep the mob out of the building. And that could have been done in any number of ways. Robert Evans's estimation was it would have taken just like 30 officers with pepper ball guns. And that would have been an easy way to, to keep people from breaching the building. I trust him on that. He's been in enough riots to understand what level of firepower is necessary. Obviously, it was nothing compared to what they were doing in Portland. We had a lot of people saying that, like, this has never happened before. Well, there is one time that it has happened, and not on the federal level, but during the so-called redemption that ended Reconstruction, you had these kinds of mob white takeovers of state capitals to end the Reconstruction governments. And Adam Serwer 
published a piece in the Atlantic that explains this in pretty good detail. There are a lot of people who have been talking about it, but Serwer is probably the one, I'd say, mainstream public intellectual that is, to my mind, still really credible on these issues. He's one of these people who was able to call Trump what he was from the beginning. And I think that he, he gives a good analysis in that piece. And that's what I see going on here more than anything else. And even if it looks stupid, the problem is that, well, now they've tasted blood. And, you know, while some of them might peel off, there will be a diehard contingent that is encouraged by this. The question is, how many of them will that be and what will they do next? There's organizing for the Million Militia March or the Million Mega March on the 20th. Places like Parlor are organizing it. They're preparing to be at the Capitol the day before and the day of inauguration of Biden. And they're planning to bring armed weapons. Yeah, there's certainly going to be some mayhem at the inauguration. And I think the bigger question is, well, what kind of mayhem will follow? And what are they going to do with their, you know, martyrs? They're people who died in this event that they're now going to talk about as, you know, some sort of saints or whatever, you know. You know, we've, we've said that fascism loves to be wounded. Fascism loves to play victim. And they will do that with this, even if to everybody else, it's proof of how the state will bend over backwards to act like they're not a problem. They will take it as, look how persecuted we are. And look at as, our President Trump not being able to tweet anymore. This exactly. First Amendment. Exactly. And so for all that the liberals and the left rightly mock Trump as a crybaby, as somebody who's like main skill is whining and complaining, that is really perfect. I mean, what did Hitler do better than anything else? Well, whined and moaned and complained about how downtrodden the German people were. Hitler's bitching and moaning about the Treaty of Versailles was so effective that it's distorted the way that ordinary people understand the Treaty of Versailles to this day. People still are like, well, that treaty was too harsh. And because of it, it led to the Second World War. No, as Shiv Crow will tell you, fashy's going to fash. And no matter what you would do, they're still going to bitch about it and act like the victim. So you're better off just crushing them. You're better off just crushing them and finding your allies and rewarding your allies. But we've been playing literal appeasement here. The big fear on the left, that is the hard left, not the liberals, but the hard left, the big fear is that anything that emerges from this legislatively is going to be used to target the left because that's historically what has always happened. The right will push something wild like this and demonstrate how dangerous they are. They're already breaking laws that exist. They're already on the FBI's radar. They announced everything that they were going to do ahead of time on Facebook because they're a bunch of dumbass chuds and don't have any operational security. As well as... No masking. Exactly. They're all on video. And the FBI is going to track down a bunch of them, that's for sure. They're not going to track down every one of them. They're not going to do massive roundups like they did of leftists during the BLM protests. But they are going to track down the key media personalities, I imagine. Best case scenario, those people are going to you know, do some time. The thing that we're really scared about here, though, like I said, is that every time this happens, it's going to be used as an excuse to clamp down on the left because Biden is not a left winger and the liberals are not left wingers and they don't necessarily want to play ball with BLM. They're just as frightened of BLM or of the radical leftists or however you want to call all the bajillion different infighting groups on the left. They're just as afraid of those people as they are of the right wingers. So I think your worst case scenario is actually going to be that 
the stuff that comes out of this is going to be intensifying the national security state, further curtailing rights of protest, further empowering police forces, especially Department of Homeland Security. That'll take us in exactly the opposite direction from where we should be going. This is not an excuse not to defund the police. This is a demonstration of how the police never do their job anyway. They just do whatever the fuck they want, and it doesn't really matter how much money you give them. There was some commentary from the right-wingers puzzling over where Antifa was in this whole debacle. And obviously we're not going to take seriously the right-wing talking point that this was some kind of weird false flag operation done by anti-fascists just to make the fascists look bad. We know that's not true just based on who was doing it and how nonsensical such a thing would be anyhow. But people were genuinely puzzling over, well, why isn't Antifa here to stop them? Well, first off, that's not their job. That's the job of the police. And ultimately, as we saw, the Secret Service, and eventually, as we're seeing now in the aftermath, the FBI. Antifa exists to protect communities. Many people who are involved in Antifa organizing are literally anarchists, and they do not care one way or another about the government. That's why at protests you see them providing their own medical assistance, providing meals, and providing their own security. And it's because they don't trust the government and because they know what side the police tend to side with, as was demonstrated through their comparative inaction in this event, they tend to provide their own security. And that security is mainly interested in protecting communities, not interested in protecting governmental buildings. Now let's look similarly at what kinds of targets left-wingers go after, whether we're talking about BLM, whether we're talking about communists, whether we're talking about anarchists, whatever. What kind of targets do left-wingers go after when they get to a straight-up riot? Well, yeah, we had some symbolic targets out in Portland, like the federal building, courthouses, and so on and so forth. But mainly, left-wingers tend to target material things. If you are a materialist, then you're trying to do something that's meaningful in a concrete sense. We've had cases where, I think this happened in Philly, if I'm remembering correctly, people were literally attacking courthouses and police precincts because their intent was to destroy parole records. They were trying to free people in a certain sense. You can disagree with that if you think that that's a bad thing to do, politically speaking, but the point is there was a concrete interest there in trying to help actual people on the ground. And similarly, if somebody's looting a target or you know going after a private property in that kind of way, again, you can disagree with that sort of thing, but these are the material interests of people who are working class and suffering under a situation where we have massive unemployment and thinking about what was going on over the summer, it makes perfect sense to be taking things away from the wealthy interests that are controlling our lives and profiting off of us. Again, you don't have to agree with that point, but the idea is it's logical. And this is not to defend everything that any kind of left-wing activist does during a riot or any kind of actor whatsoever, especially once you get to rioting, I suppose then you wonder, well, what counts as an activist and what's just an angry person trying to steal things? That's not the point I'm getting at. The point I'm trying to indicate here is see the target that the right-wingers went after in this Capitol Hill event. 
It is characteristic of fascism to believe in the almost occult power of the symbols of government. Now, insofar as fascists are interested in taking government power by force, they are materialists. But in many cases, especially their rank and file, are occultists of a sort who believe in the magical power of certain symbols and accoutrement of the state. So that is the actual Capitol building, that is the flag, for instance, that is the uniform of the police or of the military, and so on and so forth. Because they believe that those things have magical power, they feel the need to capture these things. And sometimes this is believed in a literal sense, sometimes it's more in a symbolic sense. But that belief in symbolism makes these kinds of actions completely different than what you see on the left. Where, you know, like the whole thing over the fence in Portland, even when you have a battle that does appear to be bizarre and symbolic, it will start from a concrete place. In that case, it was literally trying to fight back against people who were killing black people in the streets. And then eventually it became a question of, well, who has power in the streets of the city? These very specific conflicts over community power. That's, to me, quite a bit different than this much more abstract notion that we get from the right wing and that we might see in this sort of occultist variant of something like QAnon, where it is a question of the spirit of the nation. Whenever anybody talks about essence, reach for your gas mask. And so when we see left-wingers, for instance, toppling statues, that's not a battle for the essence or the spirit of a nation insofar as I see it. Liberals might tend to interpret it that way, but that's because they believe in the sanctity and magical power of the state and of the nation. And I think the true left-winger isn't really so concerned with those things. I think that the true left-wing movement is going to see such events as direct community action, where if the municipal authorities are not going to remove a horrific statement of racism and violence, then the people will do it themselves. And that isn't so much a symbolic statement then, though I think a lot of people in the middle, including who I describe as the vanilla libs, consider that a symbolic statement. It's actually a material action to stop hatred from being directed at certain specific groups. If you want more concrete stuff on this, I'd direct you, of course, to Robert Evans's Worst Year Ever, to Jake Hanrahan's Popular Front. He did an interview with a reporter who was undercover on the ground, who I don't think took the event seriously enough, but, you know, there will be differing opinions. And inevitably, if you want to get into what the wackos are talking about out there, check out stuff like Knowledge Fight and eventually uh, QAnon Anonymous. I don't think they've done an episode on this event yet, but inevitably they probably will by the time our episode here is released. In closing, I guess that that's, as we've all been saying for so long, I told you so, and that's why... We're, you know, studying the German films of the 1920s.
well, American films of the 1920s as well. And this group, we've got two American films, one made in large part by German immigrants, and then Metropolis, of course, the quasi-fascist masterpiece. But, you know, the reason why we look at this is because, and this is really the root of all critical studies and all critical theory in a certain sense, is this effort to figure out what the fuck was going on during the Weimar Republic that led to Nazi Germany. Why does this very comparatively liberal and in some ways even a bit radical period in German history immediately get followed by the paradigmatic right-wing reactionary fascist regime? In studying that, hopefully we learn something about our own world, though I'm not sure. I don't know, maybe we'll see. the monstrous 20s oh my god these movies run the gamut from why the fuck would anybody watch this to what the hell just happened there are moments where i don't know about you guys i'm weird there are moments where like i moved great depths of emotion by some of these I really enjoyed Phantom because I grew up on the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical version of that and I die for that. And I've also seen the Yesen and Coppet Phantom musical. So the 1925 Phantom of the Opera was part of what originally generated some of my obsession with silent film back when I was, I don't know, young and weird. It is a fine work of art. It is a mutilated work of art, too. It's so perfectly an example of what you see in the movies of this era, because it was a true work of art in its time, and it really pushed the boundaries, and it did something weird, and we'll never really be able to figure out what it was. Everything's a reconstruction. Metropolis sort of is similar in this sense. Everything is a reconstruction, they kept editing it after the first premiere. They kept moving shit around and changing plot lines. So there's not really even a definitive version. In 1929, they decided they'd try and rejigger it for sound. They recorded an audio sync track, but it violated Lon Chaney's contract. So they, they couldn't have him speak, but other people were speaking. And we don't have a print of that film, but we have the soundtrack of that film. I don't think we have the original soundtrack for the silent version either because the version that I listened to just has like the unfinished symphony over and over and over again, which is a fucking banger, but it's probably not what it originally was. The one I had had the soundtrack, not the unfinished symphony. I think it did have the repeat of the unfinished symphony, but it also had voices talking. You had voice? Yeah. Wild. So the 1925 version is the original silent version. The 19, I wanted to say 1929, but it might be 1928. You watched and heard a reconstructed sound version, which is probably combining the print from the silent version with the soundtrack from the sound version, which they have reconstructed in some cases. So I just got the Frankenstein. Everything is a Frankenstein version. The the version that I watched had no tints at all and really, really bad color in the mask scene. What was the other Frankenstein one where they found the rest of it in 2008? Was that Metropolis? That's Metropolis. Yeah, Metropolis. So I've actually, in the course of my life, 
the print of Metropolis, like our understanding of Metropolis has changed. The first time I saw Metropolis, it was this much more brief version that was missing sections and actually had certain scenes in a different order from the original. And then Kino came out with what they thought was going to be the definitive version where they actually had filled in sections between scenes with intertitles that had descriptions of the scenes that were missing. And that's the version that I saw when I was in college. And then what was it in 08? They dug up this other print that was in like horrific condition. You can tell and it's like, it's this tea stained color and it's got like a lot of the lines yeah it's all scratched up it's all scratched up and that filled in some of the scenes like the part where you see that weird sculpture of hell's face oh yeah we knew that scene existed but nobody had seen that for the longest time until 08 and they found some of that print in um argentina argentina and then apparently they had some that they filled in from something they found in if i'm remembering correctly new zealand as well but argentina that's some fucking nazi shit where like dude was like this movie is my jam while i'm evacuating as the third reich is collapsing i'm going to bring my 16 millimeter home movie of metropolis to argentina because i'm a nazi piece of shit and i love this movie which gets into the big questions of like what is going on politically here (laughs) yeah well my brother stayed in argentina there was a lot of influences yeah, well, we know, I mean, we know for a fact that a lot of Nazis who could get away got away to places like Brazil and Argentina. Yeah. yeah. I love both of these movies so much, and they're so weird, and they're interesting in the ways that they're bad, too. They're wonderful in, on so many different levels. And then we also have The Man Who Laughs. Do we want to start with Phantom? Sure. I was so excited when I saw Lon Chaney was in it. And I was like, oh, he's the fan. He's going to be the Phantom. Well, and this is this is bridging out of the penalty, too. So yeah. he, he was like the dude who did these kinds of roles. And the man of a thousand faces. Sometimes two or less legs. <laughs> Supposedly, the scene where Mary Philbin pulls his mask off, people were like shrieking horrified when they saw what his face looked like. Now, it's hard to tell whether that's legit or not, because this is also an era in which promoters would put that kind of a story in the press to generate hype about the movie. But they did, you know, do a good job of keeping quiet on what he would look like. And of course, he designed his own makeup. And this rig involved, I think, hooks in his nose to pull him back. He's almost always hurting himself in these movies horribly. (laughs) He was like bleeding from his nose because of the way that he had his face bound up to get into this weird contorted oh my god he's wanted to make his face look like a skull where would he put the hooks for it because i'm looking at his picture now the cheekbones look weird he did that with makeup i think he had hooks in his nostrils then going over the back of his head and the film just wasn't fine grain enough that you'd actually see the strings his mask reminded me of the joker though 
Yeah. yeah. I do want to talk about the Joker. So the man who laughs is obviously an inspiration directly for the Joker. And when you see Conrad Veet's face in that movie, you can see like, oh man, this is where the Joker's grin comes from. But Phantom of the Opera, I'd like to think of as an equivalent influence. And here we see the culture industry really coming into its own where they've got a producer saying like, oh, I get it. What we're going to do is we're going to put Mary Philbin in against some freakazoid dude with a fucked up face. When they, when they come around to doing The Man Who Laughs, it's obvious that they're like trying to redo Phantom of the Opera in a different way. And when they're doing Phantom of the Opera, they're trying to redo Hunchback of Notre Dame. So you can see the culture industry trying to do that repetitive experience and therefore building a horror genre out of it and then that informs what the joker becomes i'm just wondering like how did lon cheney get these ideas for the nose he did fish skin and spirit gum to give it upturn and then he also did the hooks where does he get these ideas well remember that a lot of the actors who end up in early silent film are coming out of vaudeville and then vaudeville's got a lot of bleed between like sideshow shit I don't think that Lon Chaney was a sideshow dude. I don't think that he did that. But you're coming up in a culture where like a lot of what you're doing is physical acting. When you're acting in a silent movie, you're literally a mime. And so this kind of physical acting to street performance, and especially if you're generating what's going to be eventually the horror genre, a lot of that is like, look at how weird I can make my body. And so that ends up becoming Lon Chaney's area of expertise as the sideshow is more or less dying. We see this in those Weimar era German movies like Waxworks and like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is really the jumping off point for Weimar cinema, where the setting of the carnival is used to indicate this sort of creepy occult space. We also see performers from that kind of a milieu literally coming into the silent movies. So it could be that some writers are writing that in because it's something they're familiar with. I'm not saying that he was in a sideshow, but I'm just saying like the kind of skills that he was involved in. If movies hadn't have existed, maybe he would have been in a sideshow. Part of the reason the sideshow was dying was because that kind of stuff was being medicalized more. So it was less like, oh, hey, let's laugh at a person and more like, well, what's wrong with this person? How can we treat them? Can we make their life better? Sometimes that's exactly what people needed. And other times people were like, yo, I'm just out here trying to make a living. I know I look different. That's what I got to work with. That's the point. Yeah. Then you had working acts, people more like Lon Chaney, which is like, but you didn't think I could put this shit up my nose, you know? (laughs) Fish skin on my nose. Yeah. You do get some of that in these silent movies. And with The Man Who Laughs, we get like a sort of hearkening back to that history of the freak show where the man who laughs is an object of contemplation, of display, because of the way that he looks, right? He's a performer of sorts. And then we're bringing that into the silent film. In Phantom of the Opera, we're doing a similar thing, but like in a highbrow way, like you're in a fucking movie. You don't have money to go to the opera. You don't have money to go to the ballet, but you know what? We have captured on film for you what an opera might look like, what a ballet might look like. And in the original print, those scenes were in two-strip Technicolor and that's been lost. That would have been a big part of the draw, just the spectacle of like, well, you can't afford the ballet, but you can go to a movie. Uh, So we see performances of both high and low meshing together in the early versions of film. 
that is in a certain sense a fundamentally modernist thing it's also something that freaks the shit out of horkheimer and adorno in some ways for good reason in other ways just because they're elitist pricks i generally agree with their take but they are elitist pricks yeah well i started reading the dialectic of enlightenment finally I just have a problem with the way that they phrase things. I know they're writing to a specific audience and I this isn't even connected to the way that we want to talk about it with these films. But it's overdone to the point that every sentence you have to overthink in order to understand it, at, at least for me. And I don't think that's what writing should be. And I also don't think it's because I'm stupid. It's not because I'm not comprehending what they're trying to say. It's not because you're stupid at all. <laughs> Part of it is because they're intentionally trying to write in a way that makes you slow down and makes you think about every single sentence. Partially is because they're writing in German as intellectuals who are educated in this very right. traditional form. I had a prof in college who straight up said, I can't read Adorno in German. He was fucking German. Like he was born and raised native German speaker. Sure. And he was like, I cannot read Adorno in German. I much mm -hmm. prefer him in English translation. I don't really understand the German language personally, but it's a language that in certain ways of writing it can be exceedingly formal, especially with the way that you structure sentences. The joke he would tell is that there's a German prof who gives like a long lecture. And then when he gets to the end of it, he just has a paragraph of verbs. <laughs> That's obviously an exaggeration, but even Germans know that it's kind of absurd that the most formal versions of their language are structured in a way to delay and delay and delay and delay and then to give you the action right at the end. I wonder if that maybe tells us something about the German sense of drama. <laughs> we might get a little bit of that in Metropolis where it's like building and building and building. It's like, oh, yeah, this yeah. fucking shit is happening right at the end. <laughs> But you see it even in the English translations where it's like these long stringy sentences, the kind that I would like desperately want to rewrite to build to a point. Part of it is intentional. Part of it is trying to slow you down. But part of it is also just the way that the German language tends to operate. Quite honestly, Anna, like I've been reading this book since maybe not quite I was your age, but like I've been reading and rereading this book for a long time and I always find new things in it. It's, it's a tough book. Mm -hmm. and and for my money it's also probably like the easiest of anything that Horkheimer or Adorno wrote so <laughs> I think that if you skip ahead to the culture industry bit it makes a little bit more sense I think that for my mind and the way that I introduced it when we first mentioned them was I could see why in the 40s people might have thought that they were like way off base and paranoid but growing up in the 90s it was like obviously a lot of the stuff they're riffing on with the culture industry has by now become very stock and trade like punk rhetoric about selling out and about commodified rebellion and about everybody being the same because they watch the same shit. There was a moment, it's found its way into a poem in one of the first weeks of me being at college that I just heard some jackasses we were just like literally like oh everybody on the floor let's go out to dinner or something together you know in the dorm and i just heard some jackasses just they were talking about some fucking celebrity some fucking actor or actress and who is dating who or whatever and because i'm i guess wrong in the head i inevitably blurted out 
I hate brainwashed people. <laughs> I was 18 years old, and that isn't even really necessarily what I meant, but you get the idea of what I was feeling. Yeah, it ended up being like this thing where like then I got called out and it was like, what, what did you just say to me? And why would you say that to somebody? And like I end up absurdly backpedaling to this place where I'm telling them like, oh no, of course you go to college. Obviously you couldn't be brainwashed. Like I'm not believing this thing that I'm saying. And like, they don't even believe it either. They're like almost calling me out because they know that this is a thing. Actually like, yes, we're very vapid and talk about who a celebrity's date. (laughs) This is an idiotic example, but it's an example to basically point out that everybody knows this shit. If you read the culture industry chapter, it's actually obvious to the point where you have to ask yourself, why did anybody doubt this? It was because, you know, maybe in the 40s, people didn't think of things that way. But what they're really concerned with is the way that culture does brainwash us. If it's reduced to a certain extent that it gets us to talk about celebrities as though they're people that matter to our lives, that that's part of ideology and part of what makes it such a dangerous ideology is that it's apparently blank that it appears to have no ideology whatsoever they don't and you can think of them as a product they don't matter we're all products this is like stuff that's on the one hand very historically specific i could be wrong but i believe that horkheimer and adorno may have been the first to use the term late capitalism which is now super hip on the tweets. Oh, God. Um, they are using that term in the 40s basically as a way of saying like, we've gotten to this. We're like, we're literally selling a feeling. By the time we get to the 90s, that becomes a whole critique of postmodernism. And then that goes into the sort of the way that I'm educated in academia to think of what kind of world we're living in and how we're on the precipice of something inevitably collapsing to the point where several collapses hence now it's like a joke using the term late capitalism it's like yeah no shit late capitalism you know with every layer it gets degraded and degraded to the point where it's like a stupider and stupider and more simplified concept that ultimately like Horkheimer and Adorno would be probably they wouldn't be on Twitter at all they'd be dumbass professors who don't get what the discourse is like wading into it and being like people don't seem to know what words mean. And you'd have to lay on them. They're like, well, you know, it meant something last week and now it's something different. Long and short of it, you're right. Horkheimer and Adorno are insufferable elitists, but also they're pointing out something that is true and that becomes more true because we're just going further down the road. So I think that they made a Spider-Man movie when I was, I think a freshman in college and at some point several years later there was like another spider-man movie out and i was like oh they're doing a sequel to spider-man and that dude was like we're on the third of the reboot why would you do such a thing (laughs) i don't begrudge anyone their spider-man but the point is that the reboots come at a speed at which at one time it would be just sequels you know which is just a a way of illustrating how profitable repetitive genre products are. This year is the year of Wonder Woman 1984. Next year is the year of The Suicide Squad. 
So basically, we're doomed. We're They're like every every summer you get every summer you get your feminist superhero movie. I'm fine with that. Yeah, but is it possible the, to make a, a that, feminist? Movie? Well, it's not. It's not possible. Just in the same way that it's not possible to make an anti-capitalist movie, right? Like Fight Club when I was young and angry. And now I'm old and angry. Like something like Fight Club, which brought so many dudes of my generation into either anarchism or fascism, depending. That was the kind of product that could exist in the late 90s as a way of imitating rebellion, packaging it, selling it, profiting off it. And it's a perfect example of what the culture industry can do. And it's also a perfect example of how that kind of thing is like really obvious to punks. And increasingly in the 21st century, it's more and more just obvious to everybody, but that we just kind of play along with it because it's like, well, I don't know, it's like a fun ride. And, you know, we know that Wonder Woman 1984 is not going to be like, strictly speaking, a good movie. Trash. We're still going to watch it. They get our money and that's all they really care about anyway. You know, you get your like quasi-feminist superhero movie to come around once a year. You go, you see it. You like some things about it. You're Mm. pissed off about some other things about it. They do as well as they can. Certainly you don't have enough money to make a better movie. But ultimately we keep paying money to people who are already rich. It's just a way of keeping the gears of the machine turning. As we move yeah. on and on and on and on. Horkheimer and Adorno are legit Marxists who basically want to, you know, bring down this whole system. But they're also Germans of Jewish descent living in Weimar, Germany, and then in exile from Germany during the Third Reich. And then ultimately like writing in America and then going back to Germany to try and reconstruct some semblance of like what would an intellectual German culture be like. They are what we would call today black-pilled as fuck. They don't care. They just think that culture is dead and it's never going to go anywhere from here. Sure, they'd love to dream of a some kind of a Marxist or communist or whatever you want to flavor it revolution, but they don't see that on the horizon. Mainly, they just see capitalism grinding down the gears of culture into further and further and further stupidity. But mainly, they're cultural theorists, right? So they're talking what we Marxists would call superstructure. They're talking about representations of things. And then what they're lamenting is that, like, well, this thing that you call culture is actually just bullshit copies of everything. It's just like facsimiles that are like tricking you into spending money and tricking you into doing the equivalent of work when you are in your free time. And once you know that, it's hard not to see that. Well, the thing is that. As I said, these things become truer and truer every decade. So I think that actually in the 20th century, we're in a headspace where we all already know that. You show up to the movie early and you have those advertisements blaring at you to buy this and that or the other, or it looks like a trivia television show, but it's obviously just like advertising movies and talking about celebrities and shit like that. And it's so obnoxious and it's so dumb. And then you get to the end of it and it says like, Oh, be sure to show up early next time so you can watch this bullshit no, again. No, no. Nobody wants it, but we just know that that's part of the admission. It's like we're going to get advertised too. And, like, and then what? you have to sit through several trailers, you know? The other example of the culture industry that's just worth laying down for a minute here, that's really obvious for a 21st century person and that somebody in the 20th century wouldn't quite realize, it has to do with advertising, right? Horkheimer and Adorno are arguing that actually what capitalism is doing is tricking you into doing work when you're on your free time too. It doesn't seem obvious if you're just thinking 20th century advertisements, but that is what they are doing. 
even to the extent of mistaking commerce for art. We say like uh, your Super Bowl commercial watcher. My mom, for instance, is somebody who watches the Super Bowl just for the commercial. She doesn't give a shit about football. She, she watches the Super Bowl every year because she's curious about what the commercials are going to be. Mistaking commerce for art. So like you're doing work to get something sold to you because you are taking it to be art. Oh my God. But, oh no. But Horkheimer Adorno's point is that like every movie is doing that. That is what every movie is fucking doing because they're selling you the popcorn. They're selling you the movie tickets. They're selling you ultimately the like, you know, look at me, I smoke this brand of cigarette or I drink this brand of soda, you know? Even down to the point where it's like, oh, did you hear so-and-so read such a thing? And like, then you can see that Horkheimer and Adorno would be like really threatened by the idea that like, oh man, we could be commodified too. Yeah, shit, you're commodified too. Everybody's no, commodified. It's, not. it's a really obvious way that everybody in the 21st century understands it is that when you're on your phone, you're doing work. When you're on your phone, you're doing work for some company that is mining your data. Yeah, the important thing to understand about Horkheimer and Adorno's take on the culture industry isn't that people are idiots. They are elitists, but they mention this in the culture industry chapter several times, that it's not like people are getting the wool pulled over their eyes. People actually know very well what they're doing and they collaborate in it out of convenience. And again, remember, these are guys who like came through the early stages of the rise of the Third Reich, and they would have seen a lot of people playing ball with shit that was really fucked up. Not because they didn't think it was fucked up, but just because it was like, well, what options do I have? And so they come to America and they see something similar going on. It's not like literal Nazi shit, but they see something similar going on in the way that people are going to sort of passively allow themselves to be advertised to and allow their very sense of self to be commodified in a certain way as a part of consuming a cultural product. So every app on your phone is tracking so much shit about you. And we know this, but what are you going to do? That's just like the price you pay for the admission right. to the culture. Just the same way that in the 40s, the price you pay to the admission to the culture, to go to see the movie, to listen to the radio, and then eventually to watch the television, it's like, yeah, I'm going to be advertised to, right? And it just becomes more and more and more and more invasive. And so you would say late capitalism in the sense of everything down to the person you think you are being commodified, down to like... I wear Doc Martens. That's part of who I am. I myself, like as a rebel who happens to like boots, I have like, I have a very commodified sense of my identity and, you know, they happen to fit my feet. But like, yeah, it's also like I'm a punk and part of being a punk is being sold punk shit. And that's sad. But like, I got to wear shoes, you know? Right. <laughs> like, I'm not confused them. about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So this is from the chapter on the culture industry. Horkheimer and Adorno are talking about laughter. And they write, laughter about something is always laughter at it. Okay, let's try that again. Laughter about something is always laughter at it. I'm thinking to myself, the fuck? They named that movie wrong. The man who laughs himself never laughs. He's actually selling an experience of laughter by subjecting himself to ridicule. And that experience comes out of the audience's awareness of the horror of his life and theirs. Classic culture industry shit, selling an emotion. 
but an emotion at the expense of even the suffering of the person who's ostensibly selling it, but then also implicitly the suffering of those who watch it. It's, well, what am I going to do in my shit life but watch this miserable man with his miserable smile? I think those scenes early on where he's like wandering around in the snow and there's like all these gallows, just like, don't forget back in the day, it was just more obvious how shit things were. So Horkheimer and Adorno continue. There is laughter because there is nothing to laugh at. Laughter always accompanies the moment when a fear is ended. We do this constantly when we have these discussions because we're often talking about really dark shit. We'll say something and then there'll be like a pause and then we'll laugh. It's like obvious that people laugh because they just said something really dark and disturbing and they're trying to get past it. They're trying to get to the end of the horror. I'm thinking about laughter. I'm thinking about laughing at people and I'm thinking about the Joker. I think there's actually way more of a connection between these movies of the monstrous 20s and a character like the Joker than we saw between, say, Emma Goldman and Wonder Woman. This is actually a similar split. You're talking, you know, early 20th century versus mid 20th century and how things get recycled. I see a lot more continuity in a character like the Joker. At first, it doesn't seem like the character of the Jokers shares much with Gwynplaine of The Man Who Laughs or Eric of The Phantom of the Opera. But what's more significant than our view of those characters is the question of how he sees himself. So the Joker imagines himself as the tormented clown of The Man Who Laughs or the frustrated incel genius of The Phantom of the Opera. I think it's probably most obvious in the Jack Nicholson version. He is a product of the culture industry. Even back to Gwynplaine, we see him participating in the culture industry. The Joker himself, as he emerges in the 40s, is a product of the culture industry. As the 1940s creates a version of an image that is imitated from the 1920s movies. You get that repetition of a generation. We're very familiar with that generational repetition, like how grunge was recycling things from the 70s that I saw when I was coming up, or how just like a few years ago, grunge styles came back again because now we're 20 years out. So in the 40s, the dudes who are making comic books are recycling this notion of what we had in the 20s with characters like Gwynplaine or Eric into a character like the Joker. Granted, a lot of stuff has shifted, a lot of stuff has changed, but that imitative process itself is a culture industry process. Like the scrunchies and shit. Scrunchies, yes. It seems so minor, but you're right. Absolutely, scrunchies, yes. Like, why is Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman 1984? Yeah. Right. I mean, other than there the fact that no we are living reason. in 1984. There is no reason. <laughs> no. Generational repetitions. We have that repetition of the 20s into the 40s, the 40s into the 80s. And so in 1981, that Joaquin Phoenix Joker, that Arthur Fleck Joker, creates himself in imitation of variety show comedy that he's remembering from growing up, that recycled culture industry concept. In 2008, that Heath Ledger Joker as this, what I want to call, 
nihilistic Satan, like some dream out of a 90s David Fincher movie then transposed into the era of the war on terror. All the different versions of the Joker are always recycling something older and then like moving it into the future in a different weird way. Part of what you're thinking of with any kind of superhero or supervillain is how are they creating a persona? And in the era of the culture industry, it is also like, how do we all create a persona? And then of course, like a more extreme version of that. One of the most disappointing things about Ledger's Joker is his disinterest in sex. For Jack Nicholson, for Joaquin Phoenix, even for Jared Leto, even for Lon Chaney, seeing that relationship between the anti-hero as he views himself or the villain as we're told to view him and the women he loves allows us to assess whether or not he is indeed a villain. We never see that with Heath Ledger. That kind of a relationship, like, well, how do you treat the people you claim to love, enables us to assess the culture as a whole also. Why? Because through stories like The Phantom of the Opera, we see the kernel of a sort of way of treating women in movies that can become an abusive identity, can become, as I said, in a certain way, an incel identity, before we have a word like that. Is not The Phantom of the Opera the archetypal incel? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, the fact that the Phantom is this tormented or tragic hero, as well as being a monster, allows that Beauty and the Beast dynamic that Jack Nicholson is talking about in 1989 as the Joker. It allows a million other villains to justify themselves and to say, oh, I'm just misunderstood. Getting the wedding dress and the veil, like... In other renditions of what I've seen, he had a wax figure of Christine and he put the wedding dress and veil on the wax figure. The first one I remember is the 2004 Andrew Lloyd Webber one where he has a wax figure of Christine by the lake. Total incel. You're trying too hard, bro. Take a step back. I can't wait to roast that movie. I'm so excited. I was talking about the Phantom. I was talking about Gwynplaine. I was talking about how this feeds into the whole mythology of the Joker, the idea of the Joker, as we get it eventually in the Batman comic books and then movies. We've talked about antiheroes and villains. And I think that ultimately we can judge people by the way that they treat other people. (laughs) That seems pretty fair, right? Do you think that we're supposed to take Lon Chaney's Phantom as an antihero or as a villain? And what about his portrayal complicates that? I'm tempted to say antihero because, like, he's a tortured soul. I'm, like, trying to think between Harley and him. Well, having a tortured soul doesn't automatically make him an antihero. Yeah. I just have major critiques of this film in general. I would have to say that I feel like a lot of people would want to call him an anti-hero just because of how they set it up. And like, I've also got three other versions of Phantom going on in my head. In the Yeston and Coppet version, one of the owners of the opera is literally his dad who abandoned him, who's there keeping him alive because Eric reminds him of his dead wife. And it's just like, I've got a bunch of really competing things going yeah, on. Yeah, in my version, I will say that and I watched the 1925 version, I would say that he acts more like a villain than he does an anti-hero. I'd have to agree with that now that I'm differentiating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
I think that with a text like The Phantom of the Opera, we get a very interesting example of a character that's worked through several different iterations. And I think that it's fair to presume that he starts out as very villainous with certain humanizing traits, sort of similar to what we see of the blizzard in The Penalty. And then through iteration after iteration after iteration, he becomes more humanized. He becomes more understandable. He becomes someone with whom we are increasingly encouraged to identify. Yeah. That seems fair. I haven't seen every version of the Phantom of the Opera, obviously. <laughs> I've seen the live Yeston and Coppet on stage. I've seen the 2004 film version. And then there was also this Broadway Cares production where they were streaming it on YouTube with Ramin, Karim Lou, and the other person playing Christine in the Royal Philip Theater. Some of them are like a little different. But the Royal Phillips and the 2004 film version are both the Andrew Lloyd Webber. Love that man. I can't say I do, but would you say that the Andrew Lloyd Webber Phantom is supposed to be an anti-hero or a villain? I'd say more villain because they don't touch as much on his background. It was just like a quick flashback to him wearing like a bag on his head in the circus. And then they revealed it, but they didn't show him as a kid. And then the ballet teacher sort of rescued him. But like, he's never done anything good in the Andrew Lloyd Webber. I'm not sure he's ever done anything good in any movie, in any version of this. I don't know. It's funny. I wonder if there's something just about acting itself that complicates ethics. Anna, what was your take on this movie? Okay, there's a lot to talk about. Let's start off. I think the romance is ham-handed into this film. They had the opportunity to make a chilling, very psychological high movie. And for me, they took the low road. Not saying that I don't appreciate romance, but it has to be done in a certain way so that it's not cheesy. And Is it romance way, even? No, do it's you, coercion. Do you even really feel like it's romance? Whatever you want to call it. A relationship between a man and a woman on the screen. And you're right, there are some weird aspects to it, which I guess it's them trying to make it into art. But to me, it doesn't do anything. It's coercion. Strictly speaking, it is coercion, of course. I wonder about how the audience would have read this in 1925. There's a part of me that wants to say that 1925 viewers read this as a straight hardcore villain, but there's also a part of me that sees 1925 audiences as maybe reading this as a flawed and wicked man, but the thing that makes him wicked isn't the way that he's treating this woman. The thing that makes him wicked is, I don't know, that he's ugly and scary. <laughs> but what do I know? I just wanted it to be more about him. You know, what does he think and why does he do the things that he does? Not all tied to this woman that, you're right, I guess romance isn't the right word that he coerces. I think they, like I said, to me, it's partly a missed opportunity. And also, the other critique that I have, Whatever, everyone has different versions of what's high, middle, or low art. But the more movies like this that I watch, I wonder and I consider the state of production back then versus the state of production today. And I did appreciate how it was so fragmented, but then I compare something, you know, like The Phantom of the Opera, like Metropolis, to the movies that are coming out now, and I can't help but feel like it's all flash to distract from the lack of substance and the linear composition. 
Yeah, I actually think that if I see a movie like Family Opera and Metropolis, great examples of this, if I see Phantom of the Opera of 1925 or Metropolis and then something like The Dark Knight, you know, something like The Dark Knight or something like Birds of Prey, it's easy for me to actually say the flash and dazzle has always been there. The shallow characterization has always been there. The shitty politics and creepy dudes have always been there. And what's changed is the technology. But it's still like, we're going to get you in the seats to see this shit in color. We're going to get you in the seats to see these wild special effects. We're going to get you in the seats to see this badass interpretation of this unhinged villain with this character who's going to literally drive himself to the verge of who knows what to pull this off. We're going to get you in here to see a beautiful woman. They're like, actually, I see something that's like transhistorically true of the culture industry in all these movies that two strip technicolor in phantom of the opera or the what for their day were cutting edged special effects in metropolis are the equivalent of all that bullshit that christopher nolan is pulling off in the dark knight are the equivalent of we're going to punch the colors up just so and slow down the tape here and get the song to kick in just right while harley quinn kicks ass in birds of prey the industry's always been doing the same shit to trick us into watching it and going along with it and enjoying it, but like the technology's just gotten better. So I guess my critique doesn't even matter, but to me, it's even more apparent today. I um, think it's more apparent because the technology lets them do it more. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They can rely on the technology more. Whereas with the, what, you would, what I'd call like a limited palette of the silent era, it still is leaning a little bit more on our imagination. It still is leaning a little bit more maybe on the individual actors' portrayals of the roles. I think that probably Horkheimer and Adorno would agree with you that it's inevitably going to get worse and it gets worse. But I think that also, like, in a certain sense, the culture industry arrives fully formed and it just gets better at doing what it was always doing in the first place. I'm amazed, though, in the way that, like, one wild dude anchors the whole thing, whether it's Lon Chaney or whether it's Jack Nicholson or whether it's Heath Ledger, you know? Mm-hmm. What do we think about Mary Philbin? I mean, I think that she's actually quite good at what she's doing, though it's worth wondering, like, well, what does it mean to be an actress in this era or in general in this kind of a role where you're sort of window dressing for a dude who's terrorizing you? I feel terrible to admit this, but I I didn't think about her a lot as a character. So. I don't think that's terrible. I think that that's an indictment of the movie. Of not where of, the values yeah. are. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking about her acting, but I can't recall it now because I watched Phantom first. In The Man Who Laughs, she's basically just a pretty face and literally blind. And the idea yeah. is that she's capable of falling in love with him because she can't see him. So he's supposed to be a genuinely good person, but this this whole round and round, it's like a true melodrama of like round and round of like, oh, can I get married? Oh, I guess I can. It's, it's like the stupidest possible summary. She's much more interesting in The Phantom of the Opera, to my taste. I don't know, Anna, what do you think? 
it's not even a good comparison, but I think she had more of a role in The Phantom of the Opera. And like you just said. She's like Bella in Twilight. Which therefore makes her more interesting because she's doing more. She's not just there. She's very much an object in both movies, but in The Phantom of the Opera, she at least resists being an object. Yeah. Right. And even the bare minimum is enough to, I don't know, it's better than the alternatives in The Man Who Laughs. So. I love this shot of her as she's being led down into the cellar. She's supposed to look like she's hypnotized, but she looks like she's fucking judging him. It's like, mm-hmm. bitch, what you doing? <laughs> it's mm-hmm. really weird. I mean, what the role calls for her to do is to act scared, to act afraid, to act curious, to act hypnotized or suspicious or whatever. But it calls for her to do something. Yeah, in The Man Who Laughs, she's mainly just being pretty and staring into space. So we talked a little bit about the culture industry and genre studies sort of comes out of the Frankfurt School in two ways. And by the Frankfurt School, we mean these, you know, German dudes who are talking shit on culture during the Weimar period and then ultimately in exile and then in America afterward. And Horkheimer and Adorno are doing that in Dialectic of Enlightenment. And then the other major figure in this is Siegfried Krakauer. He writes a book called From Caligari to Hitler. And part of what Krakauer is doing, again, in this very pretentious way, and I'm under the impression that Krakauer wasn't actually a Marxist the way that Horkheimer and Adorno were. He was in the same crew. You know, they, they all knew each other. Krakauer was similarly elitist, though, in that sense that he was a film critic. He studied and wrote about film, and yet he seemed to have great disdain for popular film. I guess we can see where he's coming from. (laughs) Because I feel like we end up in that place, too. And what he's writing about in From Caligari to Hitler is basically trying to figure out, well, how do we see in this sequence of movies... German cinema and therefore also German culture slide from this democratic or in some ways social democratic revolution that happens at the end of the First World War into Nazi coup, ultimately, that if we want to describe it that way, all these terms are always contentious, that ultimately wipes this all away. Like, how are we sleepwalking into fascism? And he uses this figure of Dr. Caligari and his sort of well, maybe you would call him zombie sleepwalker henchman, played by, I believe, Conrad Veet, who ends up later on being the man who laughs in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. He uses that as a way of talking about this. Part of his way of talking about the genre of Weimar cinema is this sense that it's not even really important to him that people are producing individual films or thinking about them. It's more like there's a whole cultural, uh, you'd say in German zeitgeist, a whole like sort of tendency, a whole spirit of the time where it's like everybody's just sleepwalking into the next horrible thing and just taking it as inevitable. And you can see this then leading from something like Waxworks all the way into something like Metropolis. One thing that we see in the Paul Lenny films like Waxworks or The Man Who Laughs is that there's this obsession with powerful rulers doing crazy shit. And this is a solid decade before the Nazis come to power. It's something that's definitely in the realm of the things that people are worried about. And maybe that's because, 
I think that Scott Poole that we talked about earlier would say that's probably just like people remembering what the First World War was like, you know. Metropolis is a movie that like accidentally ends up being fascist, I'd say. When it came out, the Nazis hated it because they thought it was communist, but like it's so obviously fascist. It's a movie with very conflicted ideas about the world. Fritz Lang basically co-wrote it with his then wife. She ended up going full Nazi. He, on the other hand, escaped from Nazi Germany. And Fritz Lang was the kind of guy who was always under the impression that he could be apolitical, uh, which isn't really a good way to try to be when fascism is coming up all around you. And before we get into all of the theory, I'm not blowing smoke up anyone's ass. Metropolis blew my mind. I, I, I know. I was watching it and I was like, they made this in the 20s? Yeah. <laughs> it holds up by today's standards. It helps to see all the other stuff too so you can get it in context with like the kind of things that they were competing against. I think it's undoubtedly the greatest silent film ever made. Oh, yeah. Even as shittily as they thought through its plot and politics, it's still the greatest silent film ever made. <laughs> I haven't seen anything like it. And yeah. what really set it apart for me was uh, all of the different sets. They would hold up by today's standards. I know. Standard, I I know. Yeah, you can see how influential it was to just the way we think about science fiction. And it does that thing that I'm so fascinated by. Even when we saw like a movie like Batman, it does a great job of doing like, it's a future, but it's a 1920s future. And it knows it's a 1920s future. It doesn't try and hold that back. It goes a full on art deco metropolis future, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of forever then from then on been our idea of the future because they nailed it to the wall. And yet Fritz Lang was like fucking embarrassed by this film. What? He was. With artists and directors and writers and stuff like that, it's sometimes hard to read them, you know, because, you know, you make something and you can always see the flaws better than anyone else can. And there are like gaping, gaping flaws in Metropolis, but it's a super important movie and they did a lot with what they had. Also, Fritz Lang was like a fucking freak. And I think that only a freak could make this movie. Like a freak and a Nazi together made this movie. He was definitely one of those directors who tortured his cast. Like one of those directors who was so demanding that he would push people to the point of like literally hurting themselves. When you see Lon Chaney doing that shit, it's clearly like Lon Chaney wanted to do that. He was yeah. in charge of what he was doing and he was, mm -hmm. yeah, in some cases hurting himself, but that was what he was willing to do for his art. And we see the same shit with Heath Ledger or whatever, like all those weird dudes. Method acting. Yeah. And for Lon Chaney, it isn't really method acting, but it's similarly, like, not healthy. Or Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, or Joaquin Phoenix, exactly, yeah. But it means something different, ethically speaking, when it's the director forcing it on the actors, or more importantly, the actress. Yeah. And that's what you see in Fritz Lang, and it's what we'll get to eventually when we're talking about Hitchcock. And they're sort of like the phantom of the opera in their own world they're the ones that are pulling the strings and they're the ones who are saying like i am a brilliant genius and you are a star because of me and now you will suffer you will suffer for your art which is my art so brigitte helm basically steals this fucking movie oh my god yeah and mm -hmm. 
she steals this movie as the person who's supposed to be the villain and who wants me to completely rewrite this movie with her as the protagonist somehow. Like, I want the evil machine Maria to be the good guy in this movie somehow. That would be the true communist reading of the movie. And like the Nazi party was scared that you can't have something like this. This is communist, right? Nobody cared about the Nazi party in, you know, what, 28 when it came out. I mean, people did if they were Nazis, but they didn't gain power till 33. But even the moderates were like, ooh, this is a communist movie. And this gives you a sense of how fucking uptight and right slidey the Weimar Republic was. Which is why it ends up in Nazism, because everybody was like so uptight about trying to protect themselves about going to the left that they opened the door for the weirdest, most evil right wing party to take power. But like a truly communist movie would be all about Maria, the evil sex robot leading the revolution. She would be the good guy. I was reading trivia as I do. Did you read actually, about like the shit that Brigitte Helm went through? Yeah, the shit that she went through and it was actually a cast of her body. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. What? So the Metropolis robot is like a sort of wood putty mold that was made around her body. Oh my God. Now, at some point when she was trying to do these scenes as the robot, she said to Fritz Lang, why do I have to do it? Nobody's going to know the difference whether it's me or not. And Fritz Lang barked at her. I will know the difference. Okay. Yeah. Go cool down, dude. At a certain point, people felt so sorry for her trying to act out these scenes in this sort of stiff robot suit that was like literally cutting her up as she's moving around inside of it. People were like slipping coins through the cracks in the sort of robot shell, I guess, to pay her extra money for her time doing that, which kind of highlights how fucking desperate everybody was who acted in this movie. The extras who played the workers were like legitimate, unemployed, fucking starving ass Berlin workers. And the children of the workers' city Fritz Lang was like, go get some fucking waifs. Like, go around the poor part of town and get some, like, fucking poor kids. And I brought brought the dirty poor kids in, and then they played dirty poor kids. It is a movie that in many ways, like a lot of movies, like arguably all movies, is sort of like recapitulating the conditions of its production. And it's kind of nightmarish because of that. You know what's funny is that I think the work that they did was great, but I could have done without even the intertitles. I've fallen along just fine without them, but I'm sure you want to meld something that's complete. The Um, whole purpose of what they do is for film studies people. So the point isn't mm -hmm. to just get the film together. It's to document exactly what was supposed to be there in the first place. So it's really important to them to say like, well, here, there's a missing section of film right here. Like I said before, the imagery in this film is fantastic. And I'll point out a couple of parts that really stood out to me. I really love the electric rings and the beating heart and the veins mm. the transport mm-hmm. and the transformation of the machine man to Maria. I really love the sequence of Maria as the belly dancer with the sets of eyes. Oh my gosh, yeah, I have so much about that. And the pot of mist supported by African Americans, which I don't think aged well. But that's something different. No, but it's really interesting that that was done. Yeah. Right. And 
you know me, I normally would rage against the industry for a scene like that and her depiction with Babylon the Great, but it had a point, and that's what makes it so great. I think it was done tastefully, and I really liked it. Back to the belly dancing, like, oh my god. In my mind, like, that's crazy for a film of that time. It's not. To understand Weimar culture, you have to appreciate that, especially in the big cities like Berlin, it was like anything fucking goes. Berlin in the 20s was, I guess, as progressive and I don't know if I want to say sex positive, but sex permissive a culture as one could find anywhere until maybe the 60s. Like, even today, a friend of a friend, they were astounded by how many nude beaches were in Germany. That's a little bit different than what I'm talking about, because that's just not having a taboo against the human body. I'm talking about, like, actual sex and sex shows and prostitution and queer culture and transgender culture and research into sexuality and all that stuff is going on and that's exactly all the kinds of stuff that the nazis are trying to fight against i mean the nazis fucking hated berlin that's part of why ultimately they decided when berlin was under siege that they weren't gonna surrender and that they were gonna just let the city be fucking blasted to shit the like stock book burning footage that you see of you know This is a Nazi book burning. Like a lot of the stuff that they're burning is early research work on sexuality, including homosexuality and especially different kinds of gender presentation. People doing research in terms of how, you know, some people are maybe not born as necessarily male or female and research also, of course, on people who might be born male, but not feel like they are a man or vice versa, right? So ideas about all forms of what we would call today LGBTQ sexuality were circulating in the Weimar Berlin culture, both in terms of things that people did and in terms of things that were being researched. Even just on the heterosexual side of things, it was very permissive in terms of the availability of cabaret shows or even just straight up prostitution. And then, you know, even the sorts of non-vanilla sexual practices that we think of as stereotypically German. What we think of as conservative sexuality from our perspective right now is actually a very like Cold War thing. It's very much like something that was invented in the 50s. Not to say that people weren't repressed in certain ways in the past, but that like it's less like coming out of something in terms of progress and more like a sort of ebb and flow over the decades and generations. Right, I see that. Yeah. This is probably a good point to talk about like, well, what does it mean to live in the 20s? What does it mean to live in the 20s in like a defeated German empire where it's like, well, nothing matters anymore. Let's just play around in the rubble. I mean, that's a sort of strange way of putting it, but a a culture can be very permissive when it feels like what it had once stood for doesn't mean anything anymore. Then it's all up for grabs. Then it's like, well, you can do all sorts of different things. Mm -hmm. And maybe that also opens the door to people coming in in combat boots and saying, no, no, we're going back to how it was. You know, 
going back to how it was is always some imagined version of how it was. In a weird way, their defeated freedom is just another way to say, oh, well, there's nothing left to lose, you know? So let's do what we want. It's worth reminding ourselves because it's so easy to forget that the 20s in Europe were hard. For the working class, particularly, they were hard. For the middle class and the upper class, they could be quite comfortable and quite fun even. But for the workers, it was hard. We saw less of that in the United States. The sort of most crude way of understanding what happened in both of the world wars is that they needed weapons. We were making lots of weapons. And so all the weapons went this way across the Atlantic and all the money went that way. And so why does the United States end up so powerful? Well, all the money went that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. So let's talk about some of the imagery in this movie. I mean, the virgin whore thing is, I guess, the most obvious thing that's going on. If we're thinking about imagery, especially in terms of Brigitte Helms' multiple roles, we've got all kinds of things going on in terms of Christianity, in terms of like, what do we mean by communalism, communism, fascism, blah, blah, blah. We have this Tower of Babel story. We have the bit with Moloch. The story of Babel. The son's name is Frieder, right? Yes, I believe so. What made him the mediator? What made him the heart? It just seemed like he volunteered himself just to get closer. I thought there was going to be another thing where like this dude descended from the heavens saying, I am the true heart. I'm the true mediator. But no, this dude was just like, I want to bone you, so I'm the mediator now. <laughs> Let's get it on. I mean, that's basically what it was. Is yeah. It not? <laughs> no, yeah, I saw it like that. He's like, yeah, I mean, this is my route to eventually. Uh... What I don't get from this, as the token dude, who wants to fucking bone Maria as like the preaching Virgin Mary? Like, no, you don't want to bone the preaching Virgin Mary Maria. If you want to bone anybody, you want to bone the fucking weird sex machine gyrating. Not wrong. It makes no sense. It's the idiocy of the virgin whore thing as always. Yeah. Yeah. And he saw her as like the mother of the children earlier. And you can't be a mother like, if you're a virgin. Like eye contact. Eye contact. That moment, you know? Yeah, I love it. No, it's it's like a straight up fucking sit-in practically. <laughs> I brought all these kids up here to fuck with you because you ain't doing shit. I love that the hose of the rich people city wear pirate hats, by the way. That's a worthwhile yeah. thing to note. <laughs> They're hoes. They wear pirate hats and they're like chasing each other around in the fake garden or something. It's deeply weird. Yes, the eternal garden. It's deeply weird. (laughs) Yo ho ho and a bottle of rum. There you go. Deeply weird. We have obviously the huge dresses and then they're like, oh, who are you going to service today? (laughs) It is kind of badass. And once you get to the end of the movie, it seems like a kind of impossible thing to pull off, but whatever. It's not a logical movie, so whatever. It is kind of badass that as a political demonstration, she hauls several dozen kids up God knows how many stories of city to like invade the son of the richest man in uh, apparently the world's Ho Palace. 
And she's basically performing a sit-in with like these kids and like, no, we're going to get up in your face. You've lived your whole life in comfort and know that there's a bunch of starving waifs down several stories below. And his mind is blown because it doesn't take much. And also he immediately falls in love with her. Boo. He's so aggressively shallow. There was like nothing there. Yeah. I was also thinking about the green lipstick. Been thinking way more about eye makeup. When Brigitte Helm does her evil Maria bit, she manages to wink with both eyes, but not at the same time, which I find completely wild. She had great control over her body. It's not a blink. It's a wink with both eyes. It's like, I can't do it. I thought I did it, but I probably didn't. The main differences between the two characters is the eye makeup. Yeah. And and then, of course, her gestures. And I wonder if the things that she does in the cabaret sequence are the kinds of things that you would have seen in Weimar era Berlin in a cabaret. Because if they were, that's fucking nuts. It's just so weird to our eye today. And clearly Fritz Lang is critiquing that in the way that he shows the men reacting as like instantly turned into like apes. And then, yeah, you have those shots where it's just like a bunch of eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the virgin whore. The movie is so intent on blaming her, which is, of course, to us, so ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It does a similar thing when it tells the story of Babel. This is the whole lack of communication theme that you have there. Because the moral of the story is supposed to be that when there is no communication between the head and the hands, something goes wrong. You need the heart as a mediator. Because that's Uh, the theme of the movie, the way that it ends up telling the story of Babel ends up actually blaming the workers Like, they couldn't understand what the head was trying to do, and they were jealous, and they destroyed. The hands did not know the brain. Yeah, and the hands reach up and pull the tower down. So Babel then ends up being the story about lack of communication because this dumb fucking workers. I think it would have been cool. It wouldn't have happened. But if, like, Maria caught Frieder's eye, and she was the mediator the woman bringing all of this fucking together that'd be awesome because she latched on to the head but she was part of the hands that needed to do the stuff so it would have been cool if she was the mediator i don't care about the real maria the real maria fucking sucks what would you describe her as i think that the real maria is something that is probably more meaningful in german culture than in american culture a hundred years later the real maria is like fucking Angela Merkel. That's not to say that like literal one for one, but eventually you get to that. The human Maria is proposing a form of moderate communalism that is compatible with a sense of Christianity with sort of a social conscience. And that's all well and good. It's very reasonable and certainly an ethical model for things, it doesn't really seem appropriate to a situation as nightmarishly dystopian as the one that we're seeing. 
it's something that I think represents what ends up becoming later on the sort of mainstream moderate German liberal position. I do believe that Angela Merkel's party is the Christian Democratic Party. As far as I'm concerned, she's not nearly radical enough for the situation. To me, the true mediator is like the evil machine Maria, who's like, let's fuck shit up and maybe also fuck each other. (laughs) (laughs) I will have to say, I like this film, but the ending between the joining of the upper and lower classes is cheesy crap. (laughs) It's a bad attempt at making a profound statement of obviously class conflict, you know? If we find a good enough solution, then everything that's ever happened between our classes will be fine. And that's unrealistic. And maybe I'm taking it too literal, but it's like the scene where Wonder Woman is going across the battlefield. Oh, if we find a weapon good enough to blast through all this shit, then everything will be fine. Well, no, that's not really realistic. And you're kind of forcing a narrative on people who didn't really ask for one in the first place. I think it's even worse than what you're saying. I think it's actually awful politically. It's accidentally fascist. I believe it's intentionally fascist for Thea von Harbo. And for Fritz Lang, it's accidentally fascist. It's like I said, Fritz Lang is trying to be apolitical as he makes this movie. He just wants to make a cool science fiction movie. But it's based on this novel that his wife wrote. Now, to her credit, Thea von Harbo doesn't appear to have actually been a racist when she divorces Fritz Lang in 1933, she marries, interestingly enough, an Indian man, but she was a stone-cold Nazi. And she then went on to work for the Nazis when Fritz Lang got out of Germany. And I think that in this ending, I see her really strongly putting the Nazi ideology in there. Any sort of fascist presentation of class struggle is always going to come down to the notion that the workers need to collaborate with the industrialists via the government and then typically via one person who can be that charismatic mediator. That doesn't make any sense. Of course it doesn't make any sense. It's fucking fascism. (laughs) But that's fascist ideology. So let's look at the people on this scorecard here and let's see how much actual mediation is going on. We have the number one capitalist of the city who's always run everything as far as we can see and always has been in control. Is he actually losing power? Well, we'll find out in a minute. We have his son, who's supposed to be the mediator. What? That's a pretty fucking big conflict of interest, even if his dick might be pointing in a different direction. Oh my God. We have, as a representative of the workers, the leader who was a literal fucking spy at the beginning of the movie, collaborating with the head industrialist in the fucking first place. This is not like a union leader. This is a goddamn snitch. And then he's pretending to have trouble agreeing with and shaking hands with the industrial captain. And then 
his fucking son walks in and he's like, oh yeah, I'll mediate between the things. This is just a goddamn charade that's going on. And the, the, the fourth person involved is, of course, religion. This is a fucking goddamn charade to make the workers feel like there will be mediation, to make them feel like there will be representation. It's, it's just a bunch of fucking capitalists with a, a little bit of religion sprinkled in there to make you feel a little bit better. And a little bit of representation in terms of like, well, that guy's poor too, but he's always a fucking snitch. He's always been a fucking snitch. That's the definition of the fascist coalition right there. The kind of shit like, we got some rich dude who happens to be black to run some shit to tell you that, ah, yes, there's representation here. Or, you know, I grew up poor and now I can exploit people who are the way that I used to be when I was young. So you can see that I have your interest at heart. <laughs> so there's a lot of signaling, right? So the, the crucial aspect of fascist rhetoric, as I've said before, and as I'll say again, is the old schoolboy rubber glue bit. If you see the fascists online saying that the libs are virtue signaling, to be fair, the libs are very often virtue signaling, unlike the virtuous hardcore leftists. But what they're actually revealing in that critique is what they're actually going to do, which is to say, look at me, Freder, who once spent a whole day down in the pits pretending to be a worker, and I can therefore sympathize with you. I've signaled that I can be on your side. Look at this guy who happens to dress like you, and despite the fact that he's a snitch, represents you as your union boss. He, you know, has signaled that he's on your side too. And look at Maria. Who could ever say that Maria was a wicked person? I mean, she's a virgin. She's pure. She's religious. She stands in front of children and crosses and preaches. So it's all actually this gigantic charade. It actually very cleanly defines that fascist coalition of upwardly mobile union bosses, old school capitalists, second generation conniving hucksters, and the church. I don't think that Fritz Lang intended it to say that. I think that he just thought it was like, well, whatever, you have to have an ending, you know? But I believe that Thea von Harbo wrote that because like in her mind, that was a good meeting of the minds. <laughs> in her mind, like that was a solution to a problem. But it's not. And it's, of course it, not. Yeah. The whole thing, obviously, like you said, it feels forced. And I, I remember I was watching it last night. I was around falling asleep, but it woke me up because I was like, please don't tell me that he's going to be act as a mediator and join these two. Because would that ever realistically happen? No, I get really upset at, well, cheesy scenes like that. And Some people would say that's the only thing that ever happens. <laughs> Is that you get some bullshit mediator who's actually no good at it. I mean, actually, that's exactly what happens. And I guess that's no more frustrating. I, I mean, if you want to be, if you want to, if, if you want to be really nightmarish about it, Freder isn't like fucking Hitler, okay? Freder isn't fucking Hitler. Freder's actually a nice guy, but he's not really important in the grand scheme of all the things that are moving around him. If you want to get really dark about it, the kind of mediator that Freder is, as far as I see it, not in a literal sense, but in a certain sense, is somebody like a Barack Obama. Somebody who can make you feel good and make you feel like we're moving towards something better 
And yet actually the old man <laughs> is still running the economy and the snitch is still running the labor union. And it's not obviously a one-to-one comparison. You get what I'm saying? But like, it's a feel-good signal rather than an actual coalition. Yeah, ouch. Putting it like that, I think, makes it necessarily scary. And again, I'm not accusing Barack Obama of fascism. I'm just saying that we need to see ourselves in these things when we see the nightmare to measure ourselves properly. Like, are we doing the thing that we want to do? Are we doing something that's different? Are we paving the way to something worse? Obviously, Barack Obama isn't the son of a great rich man or something like that. If you're thinking about watching this movie in its era, actually, well, maybe not in its era exactly, but a few years later, your Fred or character is somebody like Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Now that's like almost right on the nose. Actually a very nice guy. Actually trying to do a good job of fixing some obvious problems. But on the other hand, really just kind of propping up the same awful evil system. It's not necessarily fascism per se, but that is a lopsided coalition. If you're talking anything about the Weimar period in Germany, it all ends up being stories inevitably about how liberalism that thinks it's making the right choices, that thinks it's trying to do what it needs to do to make things better for people sort of just ends up sliding aside in a way that allows that nation to stumble into fascism. So then can you take the historical trends and apply it to where we're going? I think some classes could join together for a common cause, like to some degree. I'm slightly thinking about George Floyd and and the wake of all that, how some classes have joined together to go for a common cause. Like that's where I'm coming from on that. See, I actually see that as a party coalition, interestingly, because I see there being, I used to say four, but now increasingly I would say three parties in the United States, which is to say you have your fascist nativist right wing, you have your moderate libs and old school Republicans in the center, and then you have your radical leftists. And so, yeah, sure, there's a class coalition, but more importantly, to my mind, there is a party coalition going on in the streets between, like I said, vanilla libs, the progressives, and the radical leftists. That's a party coalition, not necessarily a class coalition, because you have people in all classes in each of those. I don't know. I guess it would be kind of a party coalition, but I also think it's class to some degree as well. But obviously also race. So like George Floyd being the heart connecting some groups to fight. I think that part of the problem of American politics right now is that we've really scrambled our class politics in a way that's kind of awful and that actually comes out of a deep-seated denial of class within this country. And so something like we see at the end of Metropolis that's supposed to be like a very clear class reconciliation coalition, even watching that, we see that then translated in your way of understanding it as being a question of like, well, can the parties come together, right? Because actually each party has its own class coalition within it. And arguably that's the whole problem. There will never be one flavor of one party. Or put differently... Some of the flavors will poison you as they mix together. 
each party involves its own class coalition. So you have the corporate Republicans and the nativist white nationalist Republicans and the evangelical conservatives and I don't know, let's just say normal ass honkies all together in the Republican Party. But it's all like these people dragging this person along in the service of this person. It's all that slanted, like, actually, we all work for Joe Frederson and we shake hands and make nice. But you see the same fucking thing going on in the Democratic Party where you have the corporate Democrats who are, you know, slightly better than the corporate Republicans, I suppose. Some would say not at all better, but if we want to give them the benefit of the doubt. We have the intellectual elites, whatever that means. I'm increasingly not even sure such people exist, but for the sake of argument. We have any number of different, say, minority caucuses. We have any number of different civil rights and social justice issues represented. We have the labor movement. We have the women's movement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then all these different class coalitions and ideally including the working class as well, though increasingly it seems like the Democratic Party isn't really even interested in the working class. But you know, all those different coalitions, as I mentioned, are part of the working class. It's just a question of how you slice and dice it. I'll end up then shaking hands and making nice and smiling together to put up a number one Biden corporate Democrat or Kerry corporate Democrat or Clinton corporate <sighs> Democrat. You think about it really hard and it's like, holy shit, was liberalism fascism all along? Well, like not quite, but potentially. Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> it always could be if the chips went down. Admittedly, that's the Marxist argument. And you don't have to agree with the Marxist argument. I'm not here to convert you, but this is like straight up the Marxist reading of it, which is that liberal capitalism will inevitably go in this direction. And this is why I say that Horkheimer and Adorno in the parlance of our times are fucking blackpilled. They say that liberal capitalism is ready for everybody to play nice and play nice and play nice and play nice. But then when the chips are down, if it looks like the social democratic movement might come up and be able to like actually take over government and do things like give people health care or put people who don't have houses in homes, that wasn't even on the table for us. But to me, that's like the number one problem that I see in Eau Claire is like, there should be fucking homeless people. Like there shouldn't be fucking homeless people in a place that's this cold. That is fucking criminal. But the moment you start talking about that, you know, or the moment, the, you know, in our primary, you say, have the most moderate social Democrat come up and say, well, okay, well, maybe we could not have to pay millions of dollars for health insurance. Then you have all the forces of the party, all the forces of the government come together to smash that down and say, we're all going to shake hands and make nice. And if not, we will beat your fucking skulls in. I'm not here to accuse Biden of being a fascist. That's not the point. Obviously, we know who the real fascists are right now. This is what happened in Weimar, Germany, where the center left was so scared of anything more radically left getting any power that they opened the door for the real scary people. Oh, what should we do? <laughs> All, we need to all you know, listen to what Robert Evans says. He did a whole series on the bastards of the Weimar period. There's always bastards. Obviously, today we see the beginning of a number of different genres, right? Mm -hmm. We see the beginning of horror genres. 
we see the beginning of science fiction. I mean, maybe not the beginning, but the beginning of something that actually looks like decent science fiction. Mm-hmm. We see ways that both realism and resistances to realism filter through the film of the era. We see blurring of the lines of who is a hero, who is a villain, who is an anti-hero. And some of that's intentional in scripts. Some of that's just coming through in very good acting that makes us interested in certain figures. We see an American film industry that's being influenced by the diaspora from any number of different countries as the major filmmakers come to the United States, whether that's, say, Paul Lenny of Waxworks and then The Man Who Laughs. Eventually, Fritz Lang will make it to the United States as well. We also see a lot of unresolved political problems that are in many ways problems of bad writing too. They kind of go hand in hand, which is maybe worth bringing back around to something like, well, what is a decent political slogan and what is an irresponsible political slogan? That's what we started with tonight, right? I mean, the mediator between the head and the hands is the heart. Sounds like it makes sense, but the more we think about it, it's just hard gibberish Mm -hmm. and, and actually quite dangerous. listening to Professor Frank Fucile and research assistants Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homily. I'm sound editor Madeline McCabe. The Pointless Century is part of the Modernist Centennial Media Outreach Project, funded in part by the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire Office of Research and Sponsored Programs. Today's episode is Vile by the Melvins on their album Ozma and Der Golem by Fantomas on their album The Director's Cut. Remember to troll us on Twitter at Pointless Scent and follow us on Instagram at The Pointless Century. We're also selling the Pointless Century t-shirts now, so if you're interested in supporting your favorite anti-fascist cultural studies podcast, click the link in the description below for our new merch. We'll see you next time with a brand new episode of The Pointless Century.